Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Ann Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Now playing only in theaters. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes film.com to get tickets now. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that gives you the secret histories, little-known fascinating facts, and figures behind your favorite TV shows, movies, music, and more. My name is Alex Heigl, uh, not Jordan Runtog. I'm reading the wrong outline. Uh, <laughs> keep that in there. You know, uh, today we are taking a Mach 5 look at Top Gun, Tom Cruise's beloved 1980s fighter plane jingoistic extravaganza. Currently enjoying a new moment in the spotlight thanks to its long-in-the-making sequel, Top Gun Maverick. Jordan, as we uncovered in the Air Force One episode, you're far more of an expert in the aviation arts than I am. What is your particular history with Top Gun? Uh, very little, I'm afraid. As we discussed in the Air Force One episode, I'm more of a large plane guy rather than a fast plane guy. Um, mm. And Top Gun came out sort of in my personal pop culture danger zone, which is 1986, the year before I was born. So it wasn't old enough to fit in with my penchant for fetishizing old mid-century entertainment, but it also wasn't new mm. enough that I lived through it. So all in all, it really wasn't until this massive outpouring of affection for the sequel that I kind of really reconsidered it. And it's interesting to me to see how the original just exploded in the popular consciousness because it's coming not long after a string of movies colored by the war in Vietnam. And I'm talking movies about... Movies that are good. Well, very good. <laughs> and But they're also some of the most <laughs> devastating movies ever made. I mean, you've got Deer Hunter. You've got Coming Home. You've got Apocalypse Now. You've got Robert Altman's MASH. Tom Cruise was even in one of them. He's in... Um... Four on the 4th Vietnam. of July. I think that's after this. Yeah, you're right. That was 89. Maybe he took this to heart and made that as a corrective statement. <laughs> Throughout most of the 70s, most of the movies about the military, at least the ones that weren't kind of reliving the uh, supposed glory days of more moral wars, which is a phrase we could debate the, the meaning of some other time, but, you know, World War II <laughs> epics like Patton and things like that, the rest of the military movies from this period kind of took the more of the war-as-hell ethos and played up the horrors, or at very least the absurdity of armed conflict. So it's really fascinating to me to see how quickly the tide turned. You know, the last helicopter out of Saigon was just a decade before Top Gun started filming. 
So it's really hard to imagine a movie like this getting made at any other period, let alone becoming such an enormous success. It's just such a perfect product of Reagan's America. It's really funny, too, that you're making that comparison between the the 70s auteur era and this, because those guys that you're talking about, like uh, Coppola and Altman, some of those guys were like real film school buffs. Yeah. And the guys who were making the stuff in the 80s usually came from ads. <laughs> That's true. Know, like Tony as, Scott. as we'll find out with Tony Scott and uh, Jerry Bruckheimer, as we'll later find out. So it's the films are suddenly becoming less informed by these traditional character beats and stories and suddenly more being informed by car commercials. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just the visuals. Yeah. Yeah. Myself, I don't give two tenths of a shit about this movie. <laughs> the only extremely 80s movie I cared about is Karate Kid, uh, which is a movie. It's a semi-autobiographical movie about me. And um, <laughs> I watched it 14 to 17,000 times growing up. Um, but yeah. I'm, it's, it's worth adding that you are a black belt. Yes. Yeah, so, oh, you got me into martial arts. But yeah. So I don't really like Tom Cruise. I think he's fine in Magnolia. I admire his steadfast commitment to trying to kill himself with stunts every time a new Mission Impossible comes out. And he is sort of a fascinating like ubermensch character. He's a little short guy who's trying to like remold himself as a king god. And I admire that kind of mental uh, drive. But most of my feelings on him can be distilled from the fact that Christian Bale based his American Psycho performance on Tom Cruise. <laughs> but I am nothing if not easily swayed by popular opinion. And so as we travel through the film's genesis as a magazine article written by a guy who later became a farmer in Israel, the reason that Cruise strongly believes in the film's iconic greasy beach volleyball scene, and the secret reason that the actor who played Goose was the toughest guy in the film, I think we might make a, a fast plane fan out of me yet. <laughs> you got a fast plane. That's the first time that bit will come in. Here is everything you didn't know about Top Gun. <laughs> to begin with, what the hell is Top Gun, other than a state of mind we all strive to occupy? Well, it's the U.S. Navy Strike Fighter Tactics Instructor Program. And from 1981 to 1983, there was a guy named Ernie Christensen, Rear Admiral USN, retired, and a former Blue Angels pilot, uh, which is the Navy's flight demonstration squad. He served as commanding officer of the Top Gun program. His career was predictably insane. He was the first Naval Academy graduate to complete a tour with the Blue Angels, who, I don't know, have you ever seen the Blue Angels? Not in person, no. They're the wing of the Navy that just basically go out and do like crazy loop-de-loops and flybys. It's, it's propaganda. It's to get people hyped on the Navy. But before he did that, he flew 360 combat missions in Vietnam, and he crashed over the Tonkin Gulf in June of 1968 after an engine flamed out, which forced him to eject from an altitude of 5,000 feet. <laughs> Then just two years later, during an air show with the Blue Angels at Cedar Rapids, Iowa, his F-4 
belly landed after one of the engines remained stuck in afterburner mode and drove itself off the runway as he ejected from the cockpit. Anyway, while he was running Fighter Town, which is the colloquial name for the Marine Corps Air Station Miramar in San Diego, California, Christensen was approached by a freelance writer named Ehud Yane, who spent two weeks embedded with the personnel there for an article for California Magazine. It was published in May of 1983. After writing that piece, Yane went back to Israel, where he researched and wrote another military theme book called No Margin for Air, The Making of the Israeli Air Force, and uh, he developed a farm, and then he died in 2012. So good for him. Top producers. Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer were at the peak of their powers as a production unit after hits like 1983's Flashdance, 1984's Beverly Hills Cop. For Top Gun, Simpson came by the aviation theme quite naturally. When he was born, his dad was a Boeing mechanic. Simpson grew up in Juneau, Alaska, attending church four to five times a week with his strict Baptist parents. And maybe that's why, upon striking it big in Hollywood, he went absolutely batch Looney Tunes for drugs, and at one point was fired from Paramount after passing out mid-meeting due to the combination of working on eight films at once and his heroic drug intake. He apparently also nearly drowned at a Top Gun cast party when a bunch of pilots, rowdy pilots, threw him into a pool. He could not swim, and his leather jacket and boots were weighing him down, so he had to be pulled out of the pool, director Tony Scott recalled in a DVD commentary. Now we're going to do a quick lightning round on Don Simpson's life, because he exemplified the phrase coke addled uh and as you might imagine with that live moss mentality uh, yeah he's that man lived moss he would wear black levi's 101s and throw them away after their first wash or maybe before their first wash i'm not clear on that because he wanted the blackest crispest jeans on his body um didn't he give them claimed, away threw them away threw them away yeah uh, you know, LA, huge homeless population. None of those people could have used pants. Um, he claimed he never had uh, plastic surgery, but various rumor mill churnings alleged that he went under the knife 10 times in a six year period from 1988 to 1994 for allegedly, among other things, a chin implant, penis enlargement procedure, and placenta injections. I didn't know the enlargement thing was a real thing. I didn't know that that was a procedure one could have. I read about this from him. Your penis actually extends into your body. So what they do is is just yank the part of it that's in your body out. <laughs> like telescope. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Okay. Yes, exactly. Um, he was a pretty sex monster. He hosted these wild all-night cocaine-fueled parties. He was alleged to have used the casting couch, which is the practice by which uh, young actresses are forced to sleep with the person casting them on said couch. Um, and he would allegedly also secretly film these women during this moment. A former receptionist alleged that he was extremely verbally abusive to her while also asking her to arrange for prostitutes for him as part of her day job. Um, he was close friends with the infamous Hollywood madam Heidi Fleiss, and he uh, had sadomasochistic tastes. There's a whole chapter in a book written by, I think, several Hollywood sex workers where they just have a chapter dedicated to him being a sadomasochist. What's the book? The book is called You'll Never Make Love in This Town Again. It was published in January 96, the same year 
spoiler and month spoiler alert simpson died um it described the stories of three prostitutes and one actress about the sexual encounters with various hollywood celebrities as you joked in here not the most important takeaway but do we think he was a dom or a sub <laughs> he was almost assuredly a dom um I don't know, though. Somebody who's so in control in their daily life, maybe, like, you usually find that those kind of, like, high-powered business people like to relinquish control and kind of be, you know, bossed around in bedroom settings. Uh, he refused to go to rehab, instead hiring, and I feel very justified calling this guy a quack, uh, one Dr. Stephen Ammerman to help him. Ameren was an addict himself who believed in a positively Black Sabbathian regimen of using other drugs like morphine to combat the withdrawals from the drug the one was someone was quitting, cocaine. He subsequently overdosed in the shower of Simpson's pool house in 1995 from a drug cocktail, an incident that prompted Bruckheimer to dissolve his partnership with Simpson. Did the guy die Simpson, or just... The doctor died, yeah. The doctor died, okay. Yeah, Simpson himself so overdosed. more than an incident then. <laughs> yeah. Someone dies. I feel like then it... All incidences are deaths. Not all deaths are incidents. Okay. Perhaps. Right. <laughs> Simpson himself overdosed and died in January of 1996. He died with 21 different drugs in his systems, including antidepressants and stimulants and sedatives and tranquilizers, which were presumably all ingested to try and keep his body in a perfect stasis. Um, he obviously failed. Later that year, uh, an LA Times investigative reporter named Chuck Phillips revealed the extent of Simpson's addiction, and this is wild. He had been obtaining drugs from 15 different doctors, and police found 2,200 prescription pills lined up in alphabetical order in his bedroom closet. Alphabetical? I mean, at least he wasn't a total animal. <laughs> uh, another journalist, Charles Fleming, would write in 1998 that Simpson's drug habit cost in excess of $60,000 a month at the time he died. Jesus. Yeah, I mean, Don Simpson was, I guess, historically known for taking a very hands-on role during productions, but he was noticeably absent during the filming of Top Gun because his drug use made him, uh, surprise, increasingly paranoid to the point that he rarely left his home. I mean, I'm kind of amazed that he was able to get vertical every day. There's a podcast on iHeart, actually, called, I think it's called The Dawn, that's um, a, a narrative telling of his very fascinating but also very tragic life it meanwhile the much less colorful jerry bruckheimer majored in philosophy at college which i love before getting into ad work um he uh did an ad for the pontiac gto which i'll bring back in later and eventually he got into film production this is my favorite detail about this he met simpson at a screening of the cult favorite jamaican outlaw film starring jimmy cliff the harder they come which is really funny coming from the guy who eventually made the rock um the first flop that he made with Simpson was actually Days of Thunder starring Tom Cruise. It kind of put a dent in their momentum as, you know, the hero gods of late 80s, early 90s Hollywood. But he still has a pretty tremendous batting average in Hollywood, uh, partially with Michael Bay, you know, through the Bay run of the blockbuster 90s. But he also created CSI and The Amazing Race. Um, all right, that runs us the category on top producers. So now we get into top writers. Brockheimer reads the article, and in his words, he was struck by the lead, which is at Mach 2 and 40,000 feet over California. It's always high noon. 
That's pretty great. That's pretty really great, great lead. That's a great so, lead. Score points for Ehud. Um, and the photo art, which he would later describe as Star Wars on Earth. So it goes to Jim Cash and Jack Epps Jr., two writers who met at Michigan State University, where Cash was actually Epps' screenwriting partner or instructor. And um, it's funny, Cash never moved to L.A., he stayed in Michigan and made everyone collaborate with him long distance, which Epps explained, first they communicated by phone and mail, then they hooked up their computers with a program called Carbon Copy that linked up their computers over the phone line. They would then keep a second phone line open and they would talk about the rewrite. So essentially these guys are early internet forerunners <laughs> just to write these scripts. They were both working for Paramount at the time, and Epps said that the pitch for Top Gun came up in a meeting with Jeffrey Katzenberg. This is Epps again. He had a list of eight ideas that he offered us. Because I had my private pilot's license, I was interested in Top Gun. He added that he always envisioned Cruise for the lead role. And this is really interesting to me because according to the Top Gun DVD commentary, Katzenberg and his fellow Paramount executive Michael Eisner didn't like the script that Epps turned in initially and the film was shelved, or if not shelved, at least held up, until there was a new CEO, a guy named Ned Tannen. Uh, he took over and he greenlit the movie during a lunch meeting and he hadn't even read the screenplay. He just was like, oh, Star Wars on Earth? Do it. Make it happen. Bruckheimer says they were paid about three to 400000 for the script and it did not bode a particularly auspicious career for the two of them. They went on to write Turner and Hooch, Dick Tracy, and Anaconda. And sure, why not? Flintstones. Viva Rock Vegas. Epps spent over a month at uh, Miramar interviewing pilots, doing water training, taking jet rides, and he also takes credit for inventing the Maverick and Iceman call signs, among a few of the other lesser ones. Uh, he seems pretty salty. Sadly, Cash died at one point in the 2000s, but there's a really long-ranging interview uh, about his career at some site called, like, Remember the 80s or something. But um, I don't know. If you're super interested in Jim Cash's life, you can go check that out. Is Epps salty? Because he uh, he didn't, like, that sounds like a low figure they were given. What, three to four hundred? I think he's salty. I think he's, I think he's salty because of all of the um, rumors around there about how many drafts the script went through. And he uh, said there were just minor changes here and there that got blown out of proportion. Now we must get into top director. Yes, Tony Scott, Ridley's brother, was hired based on a commercially done of a Saab car racing a Saab jet. And you were right, the car commercial thing ends up coming back. He, Jerry Bruckheimer got his start in commercials. So did the future director of Top Gun. And this is really weird. Two other rumored directors for the film were David Cronenberg and John Carpenter, which they couldn't have gone I, far. I got that from Screen Rant, who have been somewhat dubious with their sources, but it does not make sense to me. <laughs> Carpenter makes slightly more sense because he had come off Escape from New York. He had done Christine. He had done The Thing. So maybe they were looking at him like, hey, maybe we could get this kind of weird action horror guy who had a pretty proven record at this point for doing this kind of stuff. Maybe we get him. Cronenberg just had done Videodrome, which is one of the most off-putting sci-fi horror movies of all time. I have no idea how his name would have gotten into that conversation. Because he hadn't done The Fly until 86, so I don't know. That's weird. It's also really weird that I guess Simpson and Bruckheimer supposedly approached Tony Scott because he directed, I think it was his only feature film, The Hunger, which is this 
Uh, you described it as low, medium, good vampire movie. Uh, I know it because it stars David Bowie and Catherine Deneuve, two of my my favorite people. Um, and Susan Sarandon. And Susan Sarandon. Oh, that's right. Because, yeah, Bowie yeah. and Susan Sarandon had a brief thing together, I think, as a result of that movie. Um, as they should have. Oh, I mean, that's a power couple right there. But that, did yeah. she end up getting with Tim Robbins of Top yep. Gun? <gasps> oh. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> wait till we get to my meg ryan lightning round there's a lot of funny connections from the top gun cast but okay. um so tony scott his only feature film had been this weird vampire movie with bowie the hunger didn't do well at the box office it actually did so poorly that tony scott went back to directing commercials for a time because no one else would hire him but jerry bruckheimer mostly felt a kinship with him because of his own ad background wanted to take a chance on him which is kind of nice yeah, no, I agree. And uh, Tony Scott's original pitch for Top Gun was Apocalypse Now on an Aircraft Carrier, which <laughs> producers shot down. And Heigl, I'd like you to do uh, the Mick Jagger voice via John Mulaney. No, not funny. And then I guess Scott realized that it had to be a rock and roll movie about fighter pilots. Yeah, funny. Thank you very much. Uh, not one this, of my better ones. Wait, oh yeah, you, you got it. This is my favorite anecdote about Tony Scott. You got it. You got to tell us. Scott was fired three times during the making of this film. Um, it's gonna be close each, to a record, each, right? Each, yeah, each one of these has a longer story to it, but we're condensing them down. The first time he shot in slow motion, he shot like a bunch of these landings in slow motion, and he had been told not to after the producers saw the first dailies. They were like, "Don't do that." It's a fast, it's a rock and roll movie. We don't need slow motion. So he proceeded to shoot more scenes in slow motion. So he was dismissed for that. The second time was for uh, costuming, wardrobing star Kelly McGillis and lighting her in such a way that, and this is his quote, she looked beautiful in a whorish sort of way. The first of many horrendous things she was forced to endure for this movie. Yeah, yeah. We're not getting into Kelly McGillis's life. It's tremendously sad. You can Google it at your own time. Um, but she seems to be doing better. And the third time, he shot cockpit footage with the pilers of visors down, which, you know, you put Tom Cruise and Val Kilmer in your movies, you want to see the money. You want to see the face. And you can't do that when they got all this, you know, fast plane shit in their face. So that was the third time he was fired. And so the first time he was fired, he was already on the aircraft carrier and couldn't get back to land because of the weather so he just kept shooting which i really admire but um you know he stayed on eventually didn't get fired a fourth time fourth time's the charm and uh in the dvd commentary he says uh between the hunger and top gun the phone never rang after top gun the phone didn't stop ringing i moved to la permanently got a ferrari got another motorcycle and lost my second marriage to borrow a phrase from Neil Young's dad, Scott Young, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. 
chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. If you struggle to get in shape and lose weight, I'm about to change your life. I'm Carl, the CEO of Body, and I don't like working out and eating healthy either. So here's how I get myself to do it. I make myself own the morning. And by the morning, I mean the first hour or so every day. It's not family time. It's not for scrolling social media. It's for my results and my health. And man, does it work. Every day, I get out of bed, drink a health shake I made the night before, and then I go crush a workout in the body app and just follow along day by day. Before most people are even out of bed, I'm done for the day. So here's my offer to you. The next 500 people who go to body.com will get 65% off a full year of access to over 120 programs. 65% because I want you to start now and see how fast the pounds come off and the muscles start popping. And if they don't, hey, you get your money back. Just go to body.com. That's B-O-D-I.com. And let's own the morning together and get healthy and fit. Ready to bring some spring vibes indoors? Bare Premium Plus Paint is here to make it happen. And it's starting at only $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Picture your kitchen coming to life by adding a pop of blue with the bare exclusive color Arrowhead Lake. And let's not forget your living room. Picture it drenched in the lush, verdant tones of Amazon jungle, breathing new life into your space with every glance. Head into your bathroom and let the cool breeze of sea glass wash away all your stress. And when the morning sun peeks through your bedroom window, feel the warmth and comfort of a spring sunrise with shades like coral cloud and dark crimson. Whatever your inspiration, start your spring with a durable finish that resists dirt and grime to last all season. And let your creativity bloom with Bare Premium Plus paint, starting at just $28.98 a gallon at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. And now we must move into top cast. Tom Cruise, cruise control. <laughs> cruising, cruising, cruising USA. Um, cruising for a bruising. Cruising for a bruising. Cruise was cast in the film after working with Ridley Scott, Tony's brother, on Legend, which is a semi-memory-hold, semi terrible fantasy movie. And as he said in a clip from the 30th anniversary digital re-release of Top Gun, they first offered me the film in 1983. And at this time, I was off in London working with Ridley Scott. And I remember I didn't address Top Gun during that time period. I was focused on shooting Legend. In 1984, Ridley said, you got to meet my brother. He's going to direct this film, Top Gun. And so Bruckheimer said Cruz was still sporting his ponytail that he had from shooting Legend when he went down to meet the pilots at Miramar. And so right away, these pilots are, ah, we got this hippie coming in here. We're going to give him the ride of his life. They spun him at three to four G's and flew him upside down. <laughs> and when he got on the ground, he went to the nearest phone booth and called Bruckheimer and said, I'm doing the movie. Uh, he later said that Maverick was the first character that he ever played who was larger than life. Those are his words. And it was also the first time that he'd been involved in a movie from the early stages and helping kind of iron out the script. And he later said that he was really nervous about carrying this movie. And Tony Scott would later recall, he was as out of his depth as I was. 
And just amazingly, considering what was to come for all the Mission Impossible movies, Tom Cruise had never ridden a motorcycle until this film. And to learn, he went to the conveniently named House of Motorcycles in El Cajon, California, where they taught him in the parking lot of their shop. And the motorcycle that he rides in this movie, he just learned, and he's given the fastest motorcycle in production, a Kawasaki Ninja 900. Good on him. He does not do things in half measures, I will say. I've heard mixed things about Tom Cruise's casting. One version is that the part was written especially for him. I guess they were inspired by his performance in the 1983 sports drama All the Right Moves. But there's also another, to me, much more interesting bit of fantasy casting. According to some sources... John Travolta was originally considered to play the part of Maverick, but after lengthy salary debates, the studio backed off because recent movies like Urban Cowboy had all bombed. And there were a number of other people I'd heard that were considered Matthew Modine. Apparently Turt was offered the role and turned it down because of the film's pro-military stance, but then would go on to do Full Metal Jacket. I guess that's not pro-military, though. Yeah. Um, Patrick Swayze, Emilio Estevez, Nicolas Cage, John Cusack, Matthew Roderick, I guess after no. games, uh, Sean Penn, Michael J. Fox, Scott Baio, and Tom <laughs> Hanks. We have our first Hanks connection. They all supposedly, according to what I found, turned this role down. I find it hard to believe it went through that many people. Um, and also Charlie Sheen, Rob Lowe, Kevin Bacon, Eric Stoltz, and Robert Downey Jr. were also supposedly considered. And Charlie Sheen was so excited about this movie, because this was like the hot title going around Hollywood at the time, that he basically begged to take any role in it at all, even if it was a small one. And maybe it was in his blood, because they, you know, in this early stage of production, Tony Scott's vision for this was Apocalypse Now on an aircraft carrier, and his dad was in Apocalypse Now. So maybe he thought it was his destiny but charlie sheen was rejected which is maybe why he skewered top gun in his 1991 movie hot shots hot shots is great <laughs> yeah it is. apparently all of the actors who were in the film actually got to ride in jets during the filming and anthony edwards who played goose was the only one who didn't throw up in the middle of his ride i really do have a hard time imagining tom cruise throwing up that just seems so at odds with... he probably threw up and then swallowed it <laughs> through, the, through his iron will um, Kelly McGillis. Oh, I just, we got, again, we're glossing over all of the actual horrible real life stuff that happened to us. But even in this movie, she was not treated particularly well. Scott said that he had seen her take her top off in witness. And that's the real reason she got the part. And that is, in, that is in addition to the uh, comment earlier where he said he made her look whorish. They were also supposedly considering Brooke Shields and Deborah Winger for this, Tatum O'Neill, Jodie Foster, Daryl Hannah, Diane Lane, Sarah Jessica Parker, and Linda Hamilton all turned down the role. Um, some of those are good. Carrie Fisher was yeah. also considered for the role. Uh Cruz's famous cowboy boots as part of his wardrobe were designed to make him more on a level footing with her because he is famously a short guy and she was several inches taller than him. I think she's 5'10 and he's 5'6, yeah, 5'7. Uh, yeah. So, but Scott kept them after filming wrapped because he likes cowboy boots. And Jordan, tell us a little bit of the movie trickery that they used to make up for this height difference. Yeah, and the last scene in the diner when you've lost that love and feeling comes on the jukebox and they walk up to each other. Kelly McGillis is actually standing in a trench that was dug on set because they wanted the two to look like they were the same height or at least similar height. So they As made her stand in a hole, which I feel like <laughs> is such a beautiful metaphor for what Kelly McGillis had to go through in this godforsaken production. 
Yeah, but as part of her research, she admirably shadowed a tremendously important woman, Christine Fox, who worked at the Marine Corps Air Station, Miramar, as a civilian employee of the Center for Naval Analysis, which they probably could have phrased that better. Um, you know, like <laughs> naval gazing. Is yeah, the it was like Center yeah. for Naval Gazing was taken by. Yeah, <laughs> taken by NYU. Um, at the... <laughs> at, little jab at your alma mater there. Uh... <laughs> She later became the highest ranking woman ever to serve in the Department of Defense in 2013. Good on her. At the time the movie was being developed, the filmmakers wanted the character of Charlie to either be a groupie or a gymnast. I, I don't know how either of those would have fit into the plot, but the then head of Paramount Pictures, a woman by the name of Dawn Steele, allegedly Tremendous refused name. to authorize... Yeah, Dawn Steele. I mean, that should have been the name of this character, actually. Uh, <laughs> she allegedly refused to authorize the movie Top Gun to be made until they made that character a real intelligent woman. And it's such a great role because, among many other things, she has some incredible one-liners. Uh, there's the scene when Charlie finds Maverick drinking at the airport bar after Goose has died. Spoilers. And she tells the bartender, I'll have what he's having. Hemlock, is it? Which is such a great, smart, quick joke. It's it's a reference to the death of Socrates in the 4th century BC. According to legend, he was sentenced to die after being found guilty of corrupting the youth and failing to acknowledge the city's official gods. And as a result, he was forced to consume poison made of hemlock. I think it was just a great deep-cut, highfalutin reference to pull in, just as a throwaway line in this actioner. But Kelamiglis was not asked to return for Maverick, saying in 2019... This is her quote. I'm old and I'm fat and I look age appropriate. And that is not what the whole scene is about. To me, I'd much rather feel absolutely in my skin and who I am at my age, as opposed to placing a value on all that other stuff. Good for her. Cool. Yeah. So before Kelly McGillis was cast, Ali Sheedy turned down the role because she didn't think anyone would want to see a movie about fighter pilots, which one of the all time hindsight is 2020 moves. Um, you know, the shoot seemed pretty wholesome, actually. McGillis said all that the young actors, with the exception of Cruz and Val Kilmer, um, Kilmer because he was method, Cruz because his insanity was beginning to rear its head, uh, stayed in a hotel for the shoot. Tom Cruise had to return some videotapes. Uh, that's... <laughs> American Psycho reference for you. Uh, they all stayed, all the younger actors stayed in a hotel for the shoot and they would bond by going out to dinner or to a driving range or they would play tennis and baseball. Um, she did make an oblique reference in a 2013 interview that some of the cast went down to Mexico and got in trouble down there. <laughs> Use your imagination. Yeah, this has cropped up a lot in interviews with the cast. Uh, apparently the cast would pile into Val Kilmer's van the vehicle which he, I guess, shared with them was the same place where he lost his virginity, which is a <sighs> interesting thing to come up while you're riding in that car. Um, and according to Val, they would wreak havoc across the Mexican border. In the DVD commentary, Val Kilmer describes the shoot as like being one giant weekend as far as making the thing. <laughs> Still, uh, McGillis has nothing but nice things to say about Cruz. Uh, their famous all-in-silhouette love scene was a late addition after test screening suggested it. And the reason it's in silhouette was that she had gotten a new haircut for a new film role, and it was no longer consistent with the previous footage. It's also why she's got her hair in a baseball cap in the elevator scene. 
You know what she was making? She's making a movie called Made in Heaven, which is a 1987 comedy fantasy. Really great plot about two souls who cross paths in heaven and then attempt to reconnect once they're reborn on Earth. I think that's such a great premise. But it's really interesting to me, mostly because it features cameos by Tom Petty, Rick Ocasek of the Cars, and Neil Young, which I, I don't Hell understand yeah. how they were convinced, to, especially Neil Young, to do that. But um, I don't know. Maybe well, they were just as taken cocaine. by the premise, too. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Um, <laughs> this is the 80s. <laughs> but I guess Cruz and McGillis, uh, their schedules were really tight because Tony Scott supposedly only had a matter of minutes to shoot this after-the-fact sex scene, which is hilarious. But this is also interesting. There's a scene earlier on in the movie when Charlie tells Maverick that she didn't want anyone to find out that she was falling in love with him. Maverick originally had a line to say, but Tom Cruise forgot it. So he just ad-libbed and went in to kiss her instead. And Tony Scott liked it so much that he left that scene in. Good. And now, <laughs> Val Kilmer, the only Jim Morrison we recognize. Uh, Val Kilmer initially did not want to do this film. He said in a recent documentary about his life, I felt the script was silly and I disliked warmongering films. But like McGillis, who he knew from Juilliard, apparently, he was under contract to Paramount, and so he did not have a choice, but he remained a conscientious objector. Uh, he did say that Tony's vision swayed him once he got onto the set, and so he, as he's wont to do, created his own backstory for Iceman involving the character's relationship with his father. Of course. Um, there have been a lot of rumors over the years that he and Cruz did not get along with filming. While filming, they had a rivalry on the set, but it appears to have been smoothed over with the passage of time. Kilmer just kind of chalked it up to him being all intense and method on set and treating Cruz as if he was actually Maverick and every interaction with him had to be as if he was Iceman. And he was invited back for a, a small emotional cameo in the sequel, which is actually interesting in and of itself because... It necessitated some pretty high technology recreations of his speaking voice because he can't talk well or maybe at all without the aid of a voice box uh, after his very sad battle with throat cancer. He was a sweetheart, Kilmer said of Cruz during the filming. We were all quite rowdy, me and all the real flyboys and the actors, so I actually felt a little sorry for him because we all had time to play and date the cute extras and zoom around San Diego in muscle cars. But Tom was always in some scene and never got to play with us. In order to stay in character, I guess Tom Cruise would sit as far away from the rest of the cast as possible between takes. And according to the actor who played Goose, Anthony Edwards, uh, the script initially was skeletal, and a lot of the humor was discovered in the moment from ad-libs. And probably the most famous example of this involves Val Kilmer. It's the scene when the students are being briefed by Charlie in the hangar, and Maverick explains that he flipped the bird to a MiG fighter. And she asks him how he saw the MiG up close, and he says he was flying inverted. And then right then, ice, Val Kilmer coughs, bullshit. And all the guys laughed. And that line was ad-libbed by Val Kilmer in the moment, and everyone's reactions are, are genuine. Those are just really just laughing at him. Um, Cher was Kilmer's date to the premiere, which rules. Um, and now we're getting into another another of America's sweethearts, Meg f***ing Ryan. This is the Meg Ryan lightning round that I promised earlier. I'm so excited to get into this. Um, I completely forgot she was in this movie as Goose's wife. And I guess Tony Scott was initially reluctant to cast her because she'd appeared on a soap opera as the world turns. But she got the role and she and her movie husband, Anthony Edwards, eventually dated in real life. But that's not all. 
In the movie, there's the scene where Goose plays Great Balls of Fire by Jerry Lee Lewis on piano. Meg Ryan, his on-screen wife, would later marry Dennis Quaid, who played Jerry Lee Lewis in the Great Balls of Fire biopic. And there's some other interesting Meg Ryan connections here. She would later co-star with Val Kilmer in Oliver Stone's Jim Morrison movie. And then she and fellow Top Gun co-star Tim Robbins, who I also totally forgot was in this movie, would act opposite one another in the 1994 comedy IQ, which also starred Walter Matthau as Albert Einstein. Gotta love Meg Ryan. There's actually one other incident I forgot between uh, Tom Cruise and Val Kilmer where they actually did get together uh, in the trailer and um, Tom Cruise uh, goes up to Val Kilmer and he says, do you like Huey Lewis in the news? And Val Kilmer says, ah, they're okay. And according to Val's autobiography, Tom Cruise said, well, you know, their early work was a little too new wave for my tastes. But when sports came out in 83, I think they really came into their own commercially and artistically. The whole album has a clear, crisp sound and a new sheen of consummate professionalism that I think really gives the songs a big boost. He's been compared to Elvis Costello, but I think Huey has a far more bitter, cynical sense of humor. Thank you for indulging me with that bit. Uh, I could have gone much longer. <laughs> now, finally. I really hope that was just off the top of your head. No, I had to read that from IMDb. I don't have that whole thing memorized. <laughs> now, it is time. Jordan, I hope you're ready. You got a fast plane. Plane talk. Yes, we are talking about the planes <laughs> of Top Gun. Top planes, if you will. <laughs> yes, uh, Top Gun's budget was just $15 million, and a single F-14 Tomcat cost about $38 million. So Top Gun likely wouldn't have gotten made, or at least made well, without help from the Pentagon and the Department of Defense. But screenwriter Jack Epps Jr. said that despite rumors to the contrary, quote, the Pentagon and Defense Department were really hands-off. The Navy only had four issues— First of all, the name of the school was Top Gun and not Top Guns, which was the initial title of the film. Seems like an easy fix. Secondly, the relationship between Maverick and Charlie. Officers cannot fraternize, so Charlie became an independent contractor so they could end up romantically involved and not be brought up on charges. The third was that when they were doing research, uh, Epps asked the pilots who they thought our biggest potential was for a conflict. This was during the Cold War, and instead of saying the Soviet Union, all the pilots said North Korea. Now, the U.S. at this point was trying to thaw relations with North Korea, so they asked us not to make the end conflict with North Korea. So it does end up being a nameless country that they fight against. And the fourth was that the Navy does not have mid-air collisions, or if they do, they don't want them focused in big-budget blockbusters. <laughs> So it was changed to the jet wash uh, situation that uh, disrupts the airflow flow of air over the wings. Which was actually a real incident, though I don't think anyone actually died. But yeah, considering the Navy basically viewed this film as an elaborate recruitment ad, they didn't particularly want to underscore the more hazardous aspects of enlisting in the Navy. Yeah, and incidentally, Time reported that the Pentagon was reviewing more than 200 screenplays by the autumn after Top Gun's release, which is a major increase from years prior. So, yes, their involvement in Hollywood quite deepens after Top Gun comes out. 
And here's a fact that's crazy to me for a bunch of different reasons. The Navy authorized two actual missile shots to be fired for this film. (laughs) Uh, I guess the rest of the shots of stuff being fired in the movie were done with miniatures. So these two real missile firings, they wanted to be able to reuse them for multiple times in the movie. So they filmed them for multiple angles. So they'd be able to, you know, use these shots repeatedly during the film, quite literally getting more bang for the buck. And I guess these real life, uh, thank you, thank you. I guess these real life missile firings are pretty easy to pick out because, or at least if you're into aeronautics, because the aircraft firing the missile is basically just flying straight and that would never happen in a real life dogfight. You'd be, you know, going all over the place. But to me, the fact that they fired missiles at all is pretty insane. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I guess the company that produced the model missile firings did such a good job that the Department of the Navy conducted an investigation to determine whether or not there were any other unauthorized firings of missiles from any of their planes. Um, That's great. Yeah, well done. That's the imprimatur you want on your film. It's like, I always go back to this. It's like when they made Dr. Strangelove, they recreated the interior of the bomber so well that Kubrick was afraid he was going to get hauled in because the military would think that they had a leak. Um, Scott wanted the film to be as realistic as possible, so he worked with the military and U.S. government to use real planes, real equipment, the real base, ultimately paying the military $1.8 million, uh, a figure that covered the use of real pilots who cost $7,600 an hour, according to an article in Time magazine from 1986. But Scott joked, they really just charged us for the fuel. <laughs> Which is a good deal because in 1986, jet fuel was pretty cheap. It was just a dollar a gallon. Yeah. That hurts now. (laughs) Yeah. But Tony Scott wasn't always super precious about realism. He was filming a scene in the airplane hangar with a bunch of real life Navy extras. And they came up to him during breaks in between the shooting and complained that the patches on the actors' flight suits were unrealistic. And Tony Scott basically brushed them off by saying words to the effect of, we're not making this movie for Navy fighter pilots. We're making it for Kansas wheat farmers who don't know the difference. Somewhat dismissive, but okay. Yeah, a little bit. There's a, there's a military website called We Are the Mighty, and they published a list called 79 Cringeworthy Technical Errors in Top Gun. And the most damning revelation is that there's no Top Gun award in real life. It's more of a pass-fail thing at the school. And I don't know. I feel like this revelation is kind of a bummer. (laughs) What a bummer. Um, So the aircraft carrier shots in this film were shot on the USS Enterprise. And some of the planes used were F-14 squadron jets, including the VF-114 Aardvarks and the VF-213 Black Lions planes, which... Uh, would you feel bad if you were the guy flying an aardvark if the guy next to you is flying a black lion? <laughs> I would. I have no idea what any of that means, but you go. Oh, Please I, take this over for me. <laughs> I love this. So interiors for the USS Enterprise were shot on another aircraft carrier, the USS Ranger. And I mention this only because the interiors for the Ranger were also used to film interior shots for the Starship Enterprise for Star Trek IV wow. The Voyage Home, which is released the same year as Top Gun, 1986. So just to recap, the USS Ranger subbed for two separate ships called the Enterprise in the same one-year period. Oh, she has the range. I'd like to see Meryl Streep pull that off. <laughs> I love that so much. But the Enterprise is also the location for perhaps my favorite behind-the-scenes anecdote for this movie. Tony Scott was shooting the opening of the film. He wanted to have the aircraft you know, taking off, backlit by the sun, a real beautiful scene. And unfortunately, the captain of the aircraft carrier changed the course of the ship, moving it away from this glorious sun. And... 
I guess Scott asked if he could steer the ship back the way it was, and the captain told him that turning the ship, this enormous aircraft carrier, cost 25 grand. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if he, if that was actually the cost of fuel and all the things that would go into needing to like course correct, or if he was just purely like if this was extortion. But Scott cut him a check on the spot for twenty five grand so they could get in five more minutes of shooting, and Scott claimed that that check later bounced. He was just <laughs> bluffing. That's the that's the real kicker for that. Uh, my favorite bit of fast plane trivia is that the jets were housed in Nevada and they had to fly about 20 minutes to where they were filming. And so each morning, the pilots would buzz the Nevada brothels from about 30 feet up on the way to work. Uh, again, 30 feet? Yeah. That, that's not high. Wow. Yeah. Again, according to the DVD commentary, Scott thought this was hilarious. <laughs> this is, those women are workers too. Come on, guys. Um, random bits of plane talk. All of the film's advisors agree that pilots are not allowed to give themselves their own call sign. One of them <laughs> recalls an instance in which a pilot tried to name himself Shark and was instead assigned the name Minnow for the rest of his career. <laughs> According That's to, harsh. It is, but deservedly. Try to name yourself Shark. Come on. Uh, according to Commander Guy Bus Snodgrass, tremendous name, <laughs> A real-life instructor at the academy, students are fined for making Top Gun references while they're enrolled. How much are they Five dollars every time you make a <laughs> Top Gun joke at this school. Um, Good. Speaking of call signs. That's right. Do you know Goose's real name? I, I sure don't. Uh, what is it? Trick question. It's Ooh. never mentioned in the film. Uh, Nick Bradshaw. I think you see it when Maverick goes to his bunk and you see it like on his, um, on his uniform in his room, but you never hear it mentioned. Hmm. Bummer. Um, and that officer's club scene. Uh, so in the commentary, military advisors said that the club at Miramar was actually fairly raunchy until the 1980s, at which point an admiral's wife strongly advised they stop bringing in local strippers. <laughs> they do quibble with the idea that they would be heavily drinking that much the night before a mission because they, you know, you don't want to be hung over in a f***ing fighter jet. Um <laughs> But grossly, Epps says that this kind of horndog frat brother environment was really only curtailed after the 1991 tailhook scandal in which the United States Navy and U.S. Marine Corps aviation officers were alleged to have sexually assaulted up to 83 women and seven men during a conference in Las Vegas. Yeah, this is just uh, horrific. I guess the Navy and Marine aviators force people to walk the gauntlet. They lined the hallway leading to the people's rooms. And as they would kind of pass them all, they would all just start groping them and assaulting them. And there's CCD footage of a U.S. Navy aviation officer wearing a T-shirt that has the phrase, women are property on it. Ugh. And this was justifiably so, a huge scandal that resulted in more than 300 naval officers, including 14 admirals, having to face consequences, and many were pushed out of the Navy. Good. And according to Medium, this also led the Navy to withdraw its support for the then-in-development Top Gun 2 mm. around the same time in the early 90s, basically on the grounds that this original movie had kind of encouraged this behavior in the tailhook scandal, uh, specifically the scene where... Tom Cruise follows Charlie into the ladies' room soon after meeting her at the bar. Good for the Navy. Uh, there's really no way to put a happy face on that story. Um, <laughs> but because I'm wired this way, I'd like to take us out of that unhappy scene and into a recurring segment of the show that I like to call, It Belongs in a Museum. 
This is the part of the show where I talk about priceless pop culture artifacts that have gone missing or were otherwise abused, and I think they really should have just belonged in a museum in the first place. Uh, The scene in which Maverick follows Charlie into the bathroom, it was filmed at the headquarters building at Recruit Training Command in San Diego, and the building was later demolished in the late 90s, but before the headquarters could be inspected for demolition, the bathroom counter that Maverick leans on in the bathroom and stress tests for Charlie, it was stolen, presumably by a top Gun fan who has it in their private collection. And while we're on the topic of private collections, the diner bar featured in two key scenes in the movie, the one where Goose sings Great Balls of Fire, and then at the very end where You've Lost That Love and Feeling comes on the jukebox and uh, Charlie and Maverick have a, a little moment together right before the credits roll. That's a real place in San Diego called Kansas City Barbecue. And after the release of the movie, the restaurant collected a pretty significant amount of Top Gun memorabilia that they had on display until there was a kitchen fire in 2008, which destroyed much of the restaurant. But thankfully, some, most, I think, of the memorabilia and props, according to the original piano used in the movie, survived, and the restaurant reopened later that year in 2008. But unfortunately, a few props sustained damage, like a flight helmet that got warped and the plastic all bubbled because of the heat. Which is why this stuff belongs in a museum. It belongs in a museum! (laughs) Yes. And speaking of Top Gun locations you could actually visit, there's Charlie's house in this movie, the cute little oceanfront Victorian bungalow. Uh, McGillis actually stayed there during the filming, apparently. It's now a pie shop. Built Aww. in 1887, this cottage fell into disrepair, but when developers moved in to build a resort in that same area where the cottage was, the building was moved several hundred feet from its original location and restored to its former Victorian glory, and now it's called High Pie, a Top Gun-themed pie shop along the beachfront <laughs> promenade. Jesus Christ. And having said all that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information right after this. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. If you struggle to get in shape and lose weight, I'm about to change your life. I'm Carl, the CEO of Body, and I don't like working out and eating healthy either. So here's how I get myself to do it. I make myself own the morning. And by the morning, I mean the first hour or so every day. It's not family time. It's not for scrolling social media. It's for my results and my health. And man, does it work. Every day, I get out of bed, drink a health shake I made the night before, And then I go crush a workout in the body app and just follow along day by day. Before most people are even out of bed, I'm done for the day. So here's my offer to you. The next 500 people who go to body.com will get 65% off a full year of access to over 120 programs. 65% because I want you to start now and see how fast the pounds come off and the muscles start popping. And if they don't, Hey, you get your money back. Just go to body.com. That's B-O-D-I.com. And let's own the morning together and get healthy and fit. Ready to bring some spring vibes indoors? Bare Premium Plus Paint is here to make it happen. And it's starting at only $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. 
picture your kitchen coming to life by adding a pop of blue with the bare exclusive color Arrowhead Lake. And let's not forget your living room. Picture it drenched in the lush, verdant tones of Amazon jungle, breathing new life into your space with every glance. Head into your bathroom and let the cool breeze of sea glass wash away all your stress. And when the morning sun peeks through your bedroom window, feel the warmth and comfort of a spring sunrise with shades like coral cloud and dark crimson. Whatever your inspiration, start your spring with a durable finish that resists dirt and grime to last all season. And let your creativity bloom with Bare Premium Plus paint, starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Okay, on to top cameras. Filming with all of these fast planes was an elaborate undertaking. It took 15 months, Bruckheimer says, to work out with the Navy, lawyers, and film crews how to have six cameras in the cockpits and on the planes. I bet you the lawyers were the real hold up on that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. The actors playing the pilots were trained over three months to prepare for the velocity of an F-18 flight. Um, Scott and the crew put cameras directly on the planes for which they needed special permission from the FAA because they were concerned that they would break off and become these Skylab-sized hunks of equipment hurtling to Earth over a vast (laughs) distances. Um, For all you camera nerds out there, the team used an A6 intruder with four camera positions using special camera mounts that had been developed by Grumman Aircraft Co., We mounted one in the cockpit looking forward over the shoulders of the pilot and the bomber navigator. The second was under the belly of the plane. The third could be mounted under either wing looking forward or back. And another was on high on the tail looking down the fuselage. Uh, Future NASA astronaut Scott Altman piloted the F-14 aircraft for many of the film's stunt sequences, including the titular square off with the two MiGs. He's part of a bunch of the things. He was stationed at Miramar at that point. Um, and when they do the scenes of the aircraft buzzing the tower, that's him flying. Um, obviously, they did a lot of shots with miniatures. And despite Scott's professed focus on realism, Maverick and Goose are still depicted performing maneuvers that would be virtually impossible to use in training or combat. And um, despite all of that high flying, someone actually did lose their life during the making of this film in a fairly mundane circumstance. There's a veteran Hollywood film pilot named Art Scholl who was killed shooting second unit aerial footage uh, on the northern coast of San Diego when his biplane crashed into the sea. Yeah, he intentionally put the plane into a spin to capture the footage with his onboard camera for the movie. But then his plane malfunctioned when he tried to pull himself out of the spin and he couldn't do it. And his, I guess his last words over the radio were reportedly, I have a problem, I have a real problem. And the exact cause of this crash was never actually uncovered, probably because the plane was never recovered and neither was his body, but the film is dedicated to his memory. In happier developments, you cannot talk about Top Gun without talking about Top Volleyball. The iconic baby-oiled volleyball scene that so many people have pointed out contributes to the homoerotic nature of the entire film. Uh, Pauline Kael wrote in her review at the time, When McGillis is off screen, the movie is a shiny homoerotic commercial, which is a burn, uh, but incisive. That scene happens to be very important, Cruz said in a 1986 interview with the LA Times. First of all, it shows that to fighter pilots, physical prowess is very important. 
Plus, the scene shows the constant competition between these guys, how they compete on every level, which is just truly the most fascinating insight into the mind of Tom Cruise. Um, Epps agrees. He says that the scene was originally written as basketball but got changed. And he said the idea was that these guys competed in the air and on the ground. The difference is the location and the amount of baby oil they lathered on the guys. <laughs> we didn't write it as male beefcake. We wrote it as the highest level of competition. The court at Miramar was built, the beach volleyball court was built for the film. They just dumped a ton of sand in and they immediately dismantled it after shooting. Uh, the wide shots showing the more impressive hits are professional volleyball players uh, as stand-ins. And um, yeah. Yeah, I love that they just threw this volleyball court up in a matter of hours. They just got a dump truck to back up, dump some sand, threw up some poles, ready to roll. And then they were like, this is an embarrassment. Get it off my military base. Right, pretty much. <laughs> I guess that scene and also the locker room scene were a late addition to the film, basically designed for Tom Cruise to strip down for his fans. And one of the technical advisors for the film claimed that the filmmakers basically said, we're paying $1 million for Tom Cruise, so we got to show some flesh. And I guess <laughs> poor Tony Scott was just baffled by the whole thing. He's quoted as saying, I just didn't know what to do with it, the volleyball scene. But in the end, it just became hunky bodies and California sun. But it became a favorite with the women as well as the guys, especially the San Francisco guys, he said. Later in an interview featured in the film's 30th anniversary DVD set, he said, I didn't have a vision of what I was doing other than just doing soft porn. Um, the look of the actors in the scene, and I guess in the pilot program in general, was said to be inspired by the work of photographer Bruce Weber, who's probably most famous for the work he did for Abercrombie and Fitch. He did a lot of photography for the famous posters and bags and stuff for them. So in case you needed another way to draw a line between this film and the worst people you knew in high school, there you go. Uh, Kilmer made a semi-funny joke in another DVD interview. He says, I always suspected Tom might have cooked my volleyball close-ups. If you notice, I don't have any. Cooking uh, in movie lingo means the frames were either over or underdeveloped and therefore unusable. And he, he joked, I think Tom went in there, got him a little payola, because I looked good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Top songs. We're moving into the, my favorite part of Top Gun. Uh, with my boy, Kenny Loggins. You um, interviewed him about this, right? I interviewed him. I used... Uh, Kenny Loggins was very sad about climate change, and I made a Danger Zone joke out of the headline, and I don't think he That's liked right. it. Um, oh, no! I hope he liked it. I didn't hear back from him. Um, so, obviously, the best-known Kenny Loggins track from Top Gun is Danger Zone, but he and Peter Wolf also wrote Playing With The Boys for the volleyball scene, <laughs> as in he literally wrote it for that scene in an attempt to distinguish himself from the other candidates for the job. This is an interesting look into how these songs get written into films. They basically pull in a bunch of people and screen the scenes that are going to need these songs under them. And then people kind of say, oh, I want to write for that one. I want to write for that one. Um, and then proceed to do so. And then all of those songs are then chosen by the filmmakers. So at this screening, Loggins and Wolf are saying, well, we watched it. And we could tell from the opening scenes, the aircraft carrier scenes, that everyone in the room was salivating. Oh, my God, this is where most of these people are going to want to write for. They're going to write for the big epic parts. And he said, but when the volleyball scene came on, Peter and I went, yeah, that one. No one's going to write for that scene. Let's make that happen. It has since become a hit in gay nightclubs. Meanwhile, 
motherfucking Giorgio Moroder and his lyricist Tom Whitlock were working on the rest of the film's music. Their partnership began when Whitlock helped fix the brakes on Moroder's Ferrari, which I think is adorable. Over 300 songs were considered for the film before Bruckheimer asked Giorgio to write something, and he came up with the song that would become Danger Zone. Whitlock wrote the lyrics, and they started casting about for a vocalist. Do you know that Judas Priest was asked to contribute the song Reckless to the soundtrack, but then they said no because they thought the movie was going to flop? If you told me that Judas Priest had a song in Top Gun, I would have watched this movie. Um, (laughs) Up to that point, they thought they had a different act, Logan said. And he said he thought it was either Toto, which fell apart over uh, contracting reasons, or Mickey Thomas and Jefferson Starship. Logan said he met Kevin Cronin from REO Speedwagon a year ago, and he told him that they asked him if he was available, and he said the notes were too high. But not for Logan's, baby. Corey Hart, of all people, reportedly said no because he wanted to write his own songs. Brian Adams supposedly turned it down because of the film's military themes, which is also the reason that Thomas and Starship withdrew from consideration. And Loggins, who obviously ended up singing the song, retired the song from his live sets briefly when CNN started using it as the background for dropping bombs on Baghdad. And then he says, quote, I thought it was bogus what was happening, and I didn't want to be associated with it, so I pulled it out of the show. Then I decided, since it was such a good song, I made a video of extreme sports, and we used that footage as the background in concert. Loggins didn't even meet Cruz until 2016. They were out doing a late-night show together, and he asked him if Danger Zone would be in the sequel, to which Cruz replied, it wouldn't be Top Gun without Danger Zone. So there you go. That makes me happy. I really like that. I like that Tom said that to him. Yeah, it's cute. It made him feel real good. Um, And we also cannot talk about Top Gun's music without talking about Berlin's Take My Breath Away, which picked up the Oscar and Golden Globe that year for Best Original Song. Woof. Many people probably know this. I just want to throw this in here. Berlin singer Terry Nunn was an original casting choice for Princess Leia. Did you people know that? that. You didn't know that? No, I didn't know that. Wow. Why didn't she do it? She turned it down? I'm not sure if she turned it down or if they just, but she like screen test. I, I think she did a screen test with Harrison Ford. Uh, yeah, she's talked about it a lot. So Take My Breath Away was actually written and recorded after Danger Zone because Bruckheimer requested a song for a love scene. It was originally pitched to a band called The Motels, but Moroder had recently produced No More Words for Berlin, so he brought it to them. He has said it is the song that he is most proud of having a hand in, which, what? <laughs> to paraphrase one of my favorite Roger Ebert reviews, I <laughs> hate this song. I hate, 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 hate the song. I hate it. It's a dirge that incorporates all of my least favorite elements of the 80s music and Marauder's work, frigid synths, lockstep beats, and ridiculous squawking bass lines. I hate this song so much. It's one of my least favorite top 10 songs of the last 50 years. There, I feel better now. Good. Uh, How do you t- feel about this song? It's it's treacly crap. I don't. And it's awful. I hate this soft synth. Uh, yeah, I hate it. I also hate it. Maybe not as much as you, but it's not like a good song in my opinion. The Academy begs to differ. Uh, singer Terry Nunn would recall that of the recording of it that we would go into Georgia's vast studio complex in North Hollywood, where he was doing three or four projects simultaneously with an assistant producer in every room. He would blow in and say, I don't like the horns. Take them out. We'll do more later. Okay, bye. Then he'd return later. Oh, I love it. Do more harmonies. Because 
cocaine. Apparently, the band's manager thought the song was a dud and told Nunn, Terry, if this goes top 10, I'll get a mohawk. But the record company kept pushing and it went to number one around the world. So MTV came and filmed our manager getting a mohawk. Quote Terry Nunn. But it was not all sunny for the band. When they were told the song was nominated for an Oscar, they were invited to perform on stage at the ceremony. But Terry Nunn said she refused to go because they wouldn't let her perform the whole song. The Oscar was doing like a big best song medley. So she turned it down, which is a decision she deeply regrets, especially upon finding out that Take My Breath Away won the Oscar. And now we are into a segment I like to call Top Results. Obviously, the film was a huge hit. It grossed $356 million against a production budget of $15 million. Um, you mentioned this earlier, but people have theorized that after our loss, in quotes, in Vietnam, the film allowed Americans to feel good about the military again in the middle of the jingoistic rah-rah 80s. Uh, I loved Ebert's review of Top Gun, where he says, Movies like Top Gun are hard to review because the good parts are so good and the bad parts are so relentless. The dog, the dog fights are absolutely the best since Clint Eastwood's electrifying aerial scenes in Firefox, but look out for the scenes where the people talk to each other. Uh, military recruiters parked themselves outside of theaters that were showing the film and reported a surge in calls about naval aviation officer programs. The Navy also wove in danger zone type sounding music into uh, their join the Navy commercials right after the movie came out. And I mean, they're they're basically their ads look like Top Gun scenes. They included all these shots that look like they were taken directly from Top Gun and had sound alike music. Yeah. The number in unif- of uniform personnel in all branches of the military increased by 20,000 over the previous year, and about 16,000 of those were just in the Navy, according to an article in the U.S. Naval Institute's magazine. Huh. Less uh, militaristically, sales for Ray-Ban's aviator sunglasses jumped 40% after the movie premiered, as did uh, leather bomber jackets and white t-shirts. And the producers <laughs> knew their film was a big hit when they started seeing guys rolling around L.A. dressed like Tom Cruise's character. This is something I didn't know. This sort of one of the unexpected uh, consequences of Top Gun's success was it really helped jumpstart the home video market. Because when VHS tapes started going on sale in the early 80s, they were being sold for like 100 bucks, which these days for inflation is like $230. So as a result, most of these tapes were being sold directly to rental stores who then would rent them out and try to make their money back that way. It really wasn't for like an individual consumer market. And the prices for VHS tapes would fall as the 80s continued, but... Top Gun sold their VHS tapes for $27, which was the lowest price for a top-tier Hollywood movie. And they could afford to sell it cheaply because Pepsi bought 60 seconds worth of ad space at the start of the tape, which they filled with like a Top Gun-themed Diet Pepsi ad. Hmm. And it's actually kind of cute. There's a, a pilot, and he opens his bottle of Diet Pepsi, but he can't get it out of the cup holders, so he flies upside down like that. Oh, I've seen that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's good, it's good, in order to pour it into his cup. So since then, pricing VHS tapes to own right away has become a common practice, and home video allowed for ease of repeated viewing, which gave rise to something called the Cinema 52 Project. Have you ever heard of this? No. 
It's uh, it's basically equal parts performance art and equal parts experiment. Uh, participants in the Cinema 52 project watch a film 52 times over the course of a year mm-hmm. to test, according to the website, to test how it will affect your work, your relationships, your dreams, your attitude, your breakfast, whatever. And there was a guy who watched this movie 52 times over the course of a year. I think it was once a week, thereabouts. And revelations from this really, I would imagine, quite torturous experiment included (laughs) Tom Cruise blinks 469 times. Mm -hmm. The word the is spoken 223 times. Mm -hmm. And the average time between Airboss Johnson's coffee spills is 27 minutes and 23 seconds. Hmm. Okay. Uh, you know, we also probably have to talk about Top Gun Maverick, a movie I have not seen and will not. Um, so uh, I'm busy seeing the San Francisco Alamo Drafthouse restorations of John Carpenter's classic films throughout the summer. So I have bigger and better plans, Jordan and Cruise. I go against this tide of critical Cruise reappraisal. Ugh. Continue. Well, this sequel, you very nearly got your way because this sequel was held up for many, many, many years and for a while it looked like it might not happen. Partially it was held up because of the aforementioned tailhook scandal, but also a number of other crucial reasons. One reason was that the technology was getting so good with fighter planes that the military didn't want to participate because they didn't want cameras anywhere near these new aircraft just because they were afraid of, uh, you know, still the tail end of the Cold War. So they wanted to keep their new technology under wraps. And also, Tom Cruise was the longtime holdout because I guess he wasn't really interested in doing sequels. And when he had finally agreed to star in one, his salary demands made him, and this is a quote from the studio, unaffordable. Um, so they kind of tabled this whole idea for many, many years, and they picked it up again in 2010 with original director Tony Scott expected to helm. But his suicide in 2012 placed the project in jeopardy. I guess in the days before his death, he'd finalized the script and started scouting locations. And he and Cruz had toured a naval air station in Nevada just, I think, a week prior to his death for research purposes. But the film development carried on. And in June 2017, Cruz revealed that the sequel would be titled Top Gun Maverick because he was very against having a number in the sequel. He thought that the numbers really cheapened sequels. So he refused to have a number. That's why you got Top Gun Maverick. And talking about the Top Gun sequel, Jerry Bruckheimer said, The majority of the pilots that we worked with on this current movie said they joined the military because of the first Top Gun. And that's really funny to me because one of the notes the producers received from Paramount initially when doing the first Top Gun was, Too much flying. (laughs) Which is great. But Top Gun director, the late Tony Scott, would call Top Gun the purest form of escapism, saying that it, quote, mainlines entertainment. That's good. I'd like to add that it freebases adventure, huffs exhilaration, and shoots up excitement. <laughs> and <laughs> Top Gun was selected by the Library of Congress for the National Film Registry in 2015. They said in an official statement at the time, turns out we all feel the need, the need for speed. They did not say that. Uh, <laughs> It's going to Google that. I'm no, disappointed. No, absolutely. About. They did not say that. Well, Jordan, I think that's about we all have for Fast Plane. Did you enjoy it more than Large Plane? Oh, I mean, nothing could take Nothing could beat my love of Large Plane. But uh, what about you? Did you did you enjoy this as more than you thought you would at the beginning? I enjoyed more of this than I anticipate enjoying either of those movies. 
But I'm just going to say, you got a fast plane, and I want to take it to anywhere else. So, with that in mind, play us off, Tracy. (laughs) (laughs) Folks, this has been Too Much Information. I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Runtog. Thanks so much for listening. Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The supervising producer is Mike Johns. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.